Chapter Twenty Three of The Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: What the Chief Did with Himself. While all this conference was going on between Jim Conrad and Mister Whaley at the Café Royal, Sir Francis Rose was dining alone at the Voyagers' Club. He talked to nobody when he could avoid it and the voyagers club was rather a social conversational friendly chatty little club not at all like the monumental old-fashioned clubs of the waterloo place region or the overcrowded and noisy caravanserais of the northumberland avenue quarter it was not however the humour of sir francis rose to talk this night and to those who approached him he soon made it clear that good fellowship was not the sort of thing he wanted then he had a way of conveying his sentiments very clearly without drawing on any great store of eloquence and the few who accosted him on this particular evening promptly recognized the fact that he wanted to be let alone at the voyagers club people did not mind that almost everybody had now and then on his mind a new expedition or enterprise of some kind which had to be carefully thought out and which would not be the better for even the friendliest interruption so there was no fault found with rose and he was allowed to think undisturbed over his enterprise whatever it might be rose had just now a good deal to think over there was new matter in his mind and his mental balance was a little shaken by the novelty of emotion which he had allowed to take possession of him love had since his very boyhood been a familiar a welcome a delightful disturber of his heart but how about hate hate had not up to this counted for much in the self-centred nature of francis rose he had of course in his varied career had many an outburst of sudden angry passion taking to itself for the hour the mood of hate he had killed a man more than once in his time and in countries where as waley said to conrad if you do kill a man nobody takes much trouble about a prosecution at criminal law but the intense pleasure that rose had always found in new sensation had generally been the excitement of risk and of danger of success or failure in enterprise the excitement of love-making the excitement of studying himself under new conditions now however he found the keen sensation of intense hatred taking fast grip on him he felt himself hating jim conrad and according to his fashion he cherished the new feeling and cuddled it and made much of it and was determined to give it its head just at the moment when he had become inflamed again with love for the wife whom he had not merely abandoned but thrust from him with his cruel parting message conveyed through the ring and its inscription just as he had resolved to win back her love to conquer her and to capture her just as he had found that to get her back would be to become possessed of money enough to enable him to take again that place in society which he had wantonly thrown away and now was passionately eager to recover just at that crisis came in the young man who stood as rose was convinced 
in the way of his reconquering his wife's affections. He had no doubt that Jim Conrad was madly in love with Clelia Rose. And how, if Clelia Rose were in love with Jim Conrad? It was quite possible. He, Francis Rose, had cast her off. He had sent her that ring with its confounded message telling her bluntly that their love story had all come to an end. What in the world had possessed him, he now asked himself, to do such a thing? Why could he not have remained away as other adventurous husbands do until it suited him to come back, and never come back if he did not feel inclined for a move that way? But he must be theatric, he must be romantic, he must have a new sensation, he must do things in a way that no one had done things before. He well remembered the impulse that came on him. The ring was a copy of an old family ring which had come down to Clelia's father, who had the duplicate wrought in India and gave it to Clelia and Clelia had given it to Rose in Paris just before their marriage, and asked him to wear it day and night for her sake. Then they had invented together their fantastic little anagram, Rosita to Francisco, and had it enamelled on the ring. And then, and then, and then, he had made some excuse after the first year of their marriage for leaving her and wandering off on one of his enterprises. He propitiated himself by remembering that it was only after she had found him out and had reproached him and had told him that he was not the man she believed herself to have married he first wanted to get away and be free and the idea at last occurred to him to get the ring engraved inside with signs that might signify the close of their married life, and so send it to her to let her know that all was over between her and him. He well remembered, and he felt a self-comforting pride in the recollection, that at the time he really thought he was conveying his announcement of the inevitable in a very considerate, graceful and romantic form, such as might possibly even soothe the morbid feelings of a young married woman whose husband did not find himself able to put up with married life any longer. Even still he could not help thinking that the thing, as it had to be done, and he was convinced then that it had to be done, was put into generous, regretful, and even tender shape. But, oh, how he wished now that it never had been done! Why, even if he had been absent for many more years than he actually was absent, he could have invented any tale of a wrecked ship, a desert island, a capture by savages, anything, anything. Clelia had so trusting a nature that if he had only managed her well, he was sure he could have got her to believe that he had been captured by a Barbary rover and sold into slavery among the Paynims. Now he saw clearly what he might have so easily done and said. I hated myself, Clelia. I had forfeited your love. I had forfeited it deservedly. I could not endure civilization any more. 
or the sight of the place in which we had once been happy and so i rushed off to the wildest regions i could find longing for death striving for death and with only one hope in my heart that when she heard of my early fate clelia would feel sorry for me and forgive me why to be sure that would have been the right thing to do that would have fetched her that would have fetched any nice woman but he had spoiled all with his absurd valedictory ceremony and her confounded old ring and now in came this young fellow with his youth and his sentiment and a horribly well set up young fellow too and he went and fell in love with clelia and who on earth was to say that she had not fallen in love with him some men would throw her over for ever acknowledging all the while that it was their own infernal bungling that had made the mess but i am not the man to do that sort of thing sir francis said to his own soul with proud self-appreciation she did love me once and she shall love me again i'll make her by jove i'll tame her i'll carry her off if i have to keep her in a cage a week of imprisonment will bring her round to me and as for him oh if they were only in some of the far-off regions which he had studied not wisely but too well something must be done with him if waley could not manage to send him out to patagonia or some such place and waley seemed somehow like chilling off this last day or two why then it must be seen what counsel with marmaduke coffin had to offer a good fellow marmaduke coffin a thorough good fellow afraid of nothing sticking at nothing yes it must be seen what marmaduke coffin would have to advise and at that moment a waiter came and told him that a gentleman wished to see him mr marmaduke coffin sir francis rose almost started as he heard the name he knew of course that coffin was coming he was expecting him he had ordered him to come he had fixed this place and the hour and yet he almost started when at that precise moment he heard the announcement of coffin's name it was as if in some old story a sudden purpose of evil had called up in bodily presence some demon agent to press it on and carry it out sir francis rose was not easily startled and the shudder soon passed off and he felt ashamed of himself for having felt even the slight and momentary shock after all no mortal can be always a perfect master of himself the saint has his moments of shrinking from martyrdom the bravo sometimes starts at a shadow and fears each bush an officer rose gave directions that coffin should be shown into the little recess with which we are already well acquainted in front of the window in one of the corridors where people sometimes smoked who did not care to mount up to the regular smoking-room it was rose's fixed and deliberate belief that conspiracy of any kind was most safely carried on in public 
a recess in a corridor just near a flight of stairs, with people always going up and down, who could suspect anything of conspiracy there? Rose found Marmaduke Coffin in this little recess. Coffin rose and bowed as if he were greeting a conspirator of a higher class than himself, nothing more. Then Rose ordered cigars and whisky and soda. That being accomplished, and the waiter having disappeared, Rose came to business at once. "'I am glad you have come, Coffin.' "'Of course I came,' Coffin answered. "'Yes, you are not a man of many scruples, Coffin. I have always known that of you.' "'Haven't any scruples,' Coffin replied. "'Of course not. No sensible man has. Waley has, Coffin said. Sir Francis started once again and looked into Coffin's impassive face, trying to find an expression of meaning there. He found none. Coffin seemed like a man who is propounding some abstract scientific truth. Yes, Waley has scruples. I have found that out, Rose said after a moment's pause, during which she had been questioning himself as to whether Coffin could possibly have divined what was passing in the mind of his chief. Rose might as well have sought an explanation of what the blotting-pad was thinking by staring on the blotting-pad's ink-besmirched surface. You have your own ambition, Coffin. I have my own ambition. Yes, I know. Come now, what is it? You have not got much out of our joint enterprises so far, have you? Nothing at all. Of course I know that. But you still expect. I still expect. What do you want? I want to be my own master. Come, I quite understand that sort of ambition. Now then, what sort of mastership do you want to have? I should like to set up a hair-cutting and hairdressing shop of my own. Rue de la Paix, Paris. Rose would have liked to smile, but knew that any such expression of amusement would be ill-timed. He was, however, intensely amused. Fancy what human ambition could come to. A man of no scruples who would do anything for the privilege of being the boss of a hairdresser's shop in the Rue de la Paix. After all, was it not, in the sense of true philosophy, as good an ambition as that of any other man? In the eyes of a superior power, what is the essential difference between the man whose ambition it is to reign over a hairdresser's shop and the man whose ambition it is to reign over a cabinet or over a kingdom? The thought passed through Rose's mind like a flash, and he did not allow a moment's silence to give Coffin the idea that there was anything odd about his idea of a goal in life. I know the shop I should like to have. Coffin added in an unwonted burst of effusiveness. "'The place where you have been working yourself?' Rose asked with a sudden inspiration. "'That place. 
It is to be bought. It isn't doing very well of late. I could buy it if I had the money, and I could make it pay. Five thousand pounds, not francs, pounds. The money is yours, Rose said promptly, if you can manage to do what I want to have done. Tell me. I'll tell you in a moment or two. But first, I am anxious to know a little more about this ambition of yours. Is there nothing behind it but the bossing of the shop? This time Coffin's features relaxed into something that might almost be called a smile. You are very clever, chief, he said. There is something more. Tell me what it is. Well... I know a nice little girl who I think would marry me if I got to be the owner of that shop. Rose smiled quite undisguisedly. A Paris girl, he asked. A Paris girl, yes. But, my good Coffin, you have a wife of your own here in London. They wouldn't know anything about that in Paris. Coffin replied with perfect composure. And you are prepared to run the risk? Wouldn't be any risk. Does she know that you have a wife? No, I don't mean to tell her. Rose was quite delighted with this new proof of Coffin's freedom from the slavery of conventional scruple. This is the man for me, he thought. "'What do you want done?' Coffin asked, as calmly as if he were asking a customer whether he wanted shampooing as well as hair-cutting. Rose was once more delighted. "'Well, look here. I want a man got out of the way somewhere.' "'All right. Tell me his name.' Rose drew back a little from this absolute and unconditional readiness. He hastened to qualify. Understand, Coffin, I don't want any violence. Of course not, Coffin answered tranquilly. No one ever does. And something faintly resembling a smile again crossed his solemn countenance. I see you understand things, Rose said. Yes, I understand things. And you quite understand that I don't want any violence? I quite understand, if it can possibly be avoided. Yes, yes, if it can possibly be avoided, of course, his chief hurriedly said. Only you know that I am not counselling any act of violence. You quite understand that, what? I quite understand that you are not counselling any act of violence. Only you want the man out of the way. Yes, if he can't be prevailed upon to take himself out of the way and let me be rid of him. Prevailed upon by you or by me? Prevailed upon by Whaley. I see. Whaley tries to talk him over. And if Whaley fails, then I come in. 
that's about it that's about it coffin echoed contemplatively you've got the whole business and no questions asked you may be sure i shan't ask any questions other people may of course they may i don't mind about that but you will remember that i have not advised you to do anything rash or violent chief said coffin solemnly a bargain is a bargain as between man and man that's what i always say and what i say i stick to you give me the money to buy the house in the rue de la paix and that's all you have got to do with the business except to tell me when Whaley has failed in his job and when i come in you shall know that in good time this money must it be paid all at once coffin no i can arrange about that if i have your word i can manage the business myself at any time that suits you you have my word coffin you can trust me i trust you coffin said grimly and now will you tell me the man's name and whereabouts he is likely to be found you know the man already do i that makes it all the easier to manage what is he called then rose bent over and whispered a name no gleam of surprise or emotion of any kind passed over coffin's face thought he was going out to patagonia he said after a moment of silence and with gloomy unabated coolness i wanted him to go but he seems to be backing out of it he appears to prefer london just now rose added with a bitterness of tone which he could not repress which it relieved him not to repress although in another instant he told himself that he was a fool for expressing any emotions during the arrangement of such a purely business transaction don't wonder coffin said i shouldn't like to have to go out to patagonia just now no sir francis said with a half smile the rue de la paix has more charms and the wife number two right you are coffin responded without even half a smile but don't you know that wife number two is a dangerous business you may be extradited and brought over here and tried for bigamy somehow or other although coffin was rose's chosen instrument and seemed made for the purpose there was something about his imperturbable coolness that irritated rose with all his physical daring rose felt that there were things he could not take so coolly and it annoyed him nothing venture nothing have said coffin in tone as earnest as if the proverb were then spoken for the first time on earth i run that risk for the woman i run the other risk for the house the other risk the risk of the removal don't you know was coffin really trying to make a joke the answer never can be given 
the removal what removal the removal of our friend who don't want to visit patagonia don't wonder at him patagonia must be a very stupid place to anyone who has lived in the rue de la paix that's it come in tomorrow whaley is not coming all right well i suppose we have said enough rose stood up he put it not peremptorily but gently he was anxious to conciliate as far as he possibly could but he began to find something uncanny even to him in the indifference of his follower to all risks and to all codes said all we want to sir francis too much talk never of any use between men who understand each other won't you have another whisky and soda no thanks don't care much for drinks another cigar then well yes another cigar just to carry me home he had his cigar and he went his way as he crossed st james's square he murmured to himself thought i should get hold of that house in the end knew i should oh that young fellow won't take it into his silly head to knock under and go to patagonia after all End of chapter 23